Welcome back to the Snowbank Podcast. This is your host, Gord Van. On this episode, we are going to be talking to uh, an old friend of mine now I used to race against, Tim Bender. But first, I want to uh, thank everybody for all the emails and comments you sent uh, with the uh, past uh, uh, episode with uh, Jacques Villeneuve. There's some uh, great uh, comments on there, some uh, recollections of uh, meetings with Jacques and his brother uh, going back to the 70s, and uh, some really, uh, really nice uh, stories. So um, I had some comments uh, also regarding uh, this platform and uh, basically how to download it and, uh, and listen uh, the best way. So the best way to do it is uh, to subscribe on iTunes, and you can get iTunes for PC or Mac. Um, and there's a, also a podcast app that you can get for uh, your smart device, uh, your tablet, uh, your smartphone. And you can uh, subscribe to this Snowling Podcast and others uh, on iTunes. And um, that's the most easiest, convenient way to uh, download these episodes. All those, epi- all the uh, old episodes are on there, past episodes, and you can just download them uh, via Wi-Fi or uh, or internet connection. And it's very simple to uh, to listen to and, and download to your uh, to your device or computer. Um, also, if you want to contact me, if you have a, sh- a show idea, a personality, a destination, a product, you can contact me uh, at snowmobilingpodcast at gmail. Dot com and uh, you know, some of your ideas, uh, you know, product information, and uh, maybe I can call you up and uh, have you on the show. So uh, also, uh, uh, past episodes uh, are also downloaded to uh, the Snowbling Podcast Facebook page, so you can listen to them off of that. That's just a link to uh, iTunes or to the uh, Podbeam uh, account that I have, uh, and uh, you can listen to the platforms there. Um, and also... Uh, um, SoundCloud is another uh, uh, device that I, I download my episodes to. So, that said, Tim Bender. Well, I first met Tim Bender in the in the mid to uh, late 70s, uh, and my first uh, recollection of him was uh, at Quartha uh, Cup. And one thing about uh, Tim Bender when you're when you've seen him race, he would, his snowmobile would always be different. He, the guy was a, a mastermind in innovation. Like the Carpet Brothers and uh, Kurt Hibber and stuff like that, they always had something, you know, uh, that you had to look at their their machines and and uh, and realize that there's something different about uh, the sled uh, this week. And uh, it didn't uh, it didn't uh, take long for me to figure out that uh, there were some good ideas there. And uh, and uh, you know, say the guy was a genius. And um, I ended up uh, uh, riding uh, two of his sleds. Uh, he was. Uh, uh, Asked uh, by Yamaha to uh, to build uh, special edition sleds, uh, SRVs, uh, phasers, and I had uh, two of his SRVs, and they were uh, they were fantastic sleds. Uh, surprisingly, uh, up against the uh, the uh, Indies and the, the specially built uh, Skidoo uh, um, sleds of, of Skidoo, uh, Tim had uh, a much smaller budget to work with, and he uh, he built some fantastic sleds, and he had some uh, some very uh, uh, fast racers uh, racing them, as you will hear on this podcast. So, that said, here is an interview that I did with uh, Tim Bender on October 10th, 2014. So here is Tim Bender. On the phone with me today is uh, Tim Bender. Uh, Tim, uh, I imagine, is pretty busy these days. Uh, he's uh, working on the uh, new Polaris uh, race sleds, and we're going to get to... Uh, his involvement in the, with the Polaris uh, racing team uh, uh, near the end. Uh, but uh, first, uh, we want to uh, say hello to Tim. And um, how you doing, Tim? 
Good. Very good. How about you? I'm doing great. Uh, it's, uh, it's an honor to talk to you again. Uh, we usually cross paths at the, at the snow cross races, and uh, you're exactly. busy doing your tuning, and I'm doing uh, my tech stuff, and uh, you know, we never really get to uh, a chance to uh, sit down and chat, but uh, that's, uh, no. that's our at nature the, of our business. <laughs> the races I don't see much other than the racetrack when my guys are on the racetrack and the inside of the trailer. That's my yeah. primary spot. Yeah, but uh, yeah, it's, it's great uh, talking to you again. Uh, we had uh, we had some good times when we were uh, when we were racing uh, the ovals and snow crosses. Those were those were good times. But uh, yeah, um, I want to talk to you um, uh, about your career in snowmobiling. Um, so, when did you first get involved with snowmobiling? Um, I when I was uh, probably six years old, maybe my my dad came home with a somebody owed him some money, and they were also in a, a snowmobile dealer. And uh, he was in the concrete business, and they bought some concrete from him, and they paid him with a snowmobile. So he brought home the snowmobile in 1960, summer of 1964. And uh, we didn't even know it was. I mean, nobody had snowmobiles around the area. And uh, I remember the, the first time we rode on the my, – my father driving and my brother and I both on the sled and uh, going down to dry pavement in the middle of the summer. And uh, that was my first time on a snowmobile. Do you remember what that was? What kind of snowmobile? That was a 1965 11-horse Scudoo. Right. Yeah. And uh, where did where did you where did you go from there? Um, my my dad was uh, loved to ride, and he he had polio when he was younger, so he didn't, couldn't walk too good. But he could go uh, on a snowmobile where most people could wouldn't go, or and, and as fast as most people wouldn't go. And uh, so the uh, my brother actually got into racing before I. My brother was named Bob, and he uh, he was four years older than me. And uh, when I was, uh, oh, maybe 16, we, we started moving from trail riding to, to racing. And Bob had bought a, a, a ex-Polaris factory mod sled. And, and then I, uh, I started out on a 1973 SR-292 single in the mod class. And uh, we were probably, it was the, one of the most fun years I ever had racing. Then I didn't do very good at all, uh, but it was fun doing it. And then after that season in 74, racing that, that SR-292, the next year we started building our own sleds from the ground up, which was a pretty big undertaking as well as it still is today. My brother was in the fabrication business, and he was a, um, used to build truck bodies and all kinds, anything out of aluminum that you could build. And uh, so we, we started building the sleds from the ground up. And uh, um, But uh, we... Uh, we Spent all summer building sleds, and then uh, and I also was working as I was driving a ready mix truck for my dad, and my my brother was at his fabrication business, and uh, we'd go racing all winter. So that's where you get your fabrication. Uh, yeah, I, I most of what I know fabrication wise, I learned from learned from my brother because he was uh, like I said, he was older than I was. He had gone to school for welding, and and he was a heck of a fabricator, uh, extremely smart guy. Uh, I would have never made it as far as I made it without him. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. So, um, um, that was what uh, model sleds were they on when the, when you first got serious? Um, well, the, uh, the ne next year, like in '75, we started building a, a mod sled, and I, I usually ran the 440 class, and he ran the 340 class on the mods. And then we, uh, I also had a, a, a GPX 433, actually with my my dad's trail sled from the year before. That I raced, and we we started going to Weedsport on Thursday nights. We'd run every every Thursday night on the three eighth mile oval there, and then we'd come home, go to school on Friday, and then go after school take off, and uh, we'd head to a USSA uh, Eastern Division race from anywhere from Malone, New York to Bangor, Maine, and 
we would uh, stay, stay right in our truck, and we had a built up a little camper on the back, and, and uh, had, would work on the sleds in there. And we actually worked on the sleds while we were running on the road. One of us would be driving, one of us would be working on sleds in the back of the truck. And because, uh, uh, you know, ra racing and going to school and working, too, was, uh, was a hectic schedule, to say the least. But I wouldn't trade it for, I, for the world because I learned a lot in a, in a hurry. But uh, um, had a lot of, a lot of, you know, just friends helping us. And we'd, we'd go to the races, and sometimes we were so light on budget, we, uh, we'd have to win some races and make enough gas money to get home. So. Uh, but we did real well in the Eastern Division, and uh, um, but uh, that was that 74 GPX 433 was my first real competitive sled that, uh, in the stock class, and then I moved on from there to um, we like I said we started building our own sleds, and that we ran in the mod class. They had, they had like mod two, mod three, uh, and three 340 and 440. When um, you, you had a, a, a big affiliation with uh, Ann, uh, when did when did that uh, begin? Um, I met Ann at the World Series of uh, in Wheatsport, New York, in 19 oh, I would say 75, and uh, one of my brother's ideas that we incorporated into our sleds was to get the engine down low enough we couldn't do it with a leaf spring because the leaf spring when you turn to the left would hit the area where the clutch was because you're lowering the engine, engine down that much. The primary clutch was not high off the ground. And uh, he, uh, one of his idea was to use a Cobra ski, which Ian sold. We used very few of the stock parts from it and made, made most of the stuff. But a Cobra ski had a shock that laid down in the ski, and, uh, and the, the back of the ski was just nothing but just the ski so that it, without the leaf spring there, so it had more clearance for the clutch. That's the main reason why we went to it initially, but what we didn't know, the advantage, the biggest advantage we got from it is it didn't roll over in the corner like the leaf spring did. And uh, when Ian, uh, uh, I met Ian in, at the World Series there, he, had, he was very interested in our sleds because we were using the Cobra Ski, and that's, he was one of the, probably the main distributor for selling those, and uh, so he asked if we would, uh, he, would he was just, he'd just come out with a kicker stud, which was the first stud that mounted under the slide rail. And uh, he showed this, showed it to us when we met him there, and then, and then asked us if we'd be interested in, in uh, sponsorship from him in parts for cover skis and kicker studs. And of course, we were extremely interested in that because we, <laughs> we were paying for everything ourselves or yeah. building it. You had, uh, and, you had uh, some great uh, success with uh, with Ann uh, in those early years. Uh, oh yes, well we we uh, all have talked. Uh, my brother and I coming to the uh, Eagle River for the first time. We had never been out to venture west. And uh, he he basically paid our expenses to come out there, and he was the biggest or biggest goal was to have us you know win with the uh, the Cobra skis out there. So uh, we came out and raced in the Eagle River, and both of us ended up second in our class, and uh, which was he was disappointed about because we uh, we couldn't advertise that we had won with the skis. But uh, uh, eventually we were uh, we were winning, winning races in the Eagle River. Do you remember who beat you? Um, boy, no, I don't. Uh, it was a uh, Articat mod of some place, somebody out of the Thief River area, I think. But uh, couldn't. I think it was. Uh, uh, there's some guys that actually um, can't remember the name, but they were they were big Articat mod guys. So and, where did uh, yeah. But uh, Eagle, we we get grew to love Eagle River because it was uh, you know the big tight turns or the high banking and and you know we're 
cornering feeds the tenement is everything, and that's where we shine with from the corners with our sleds. So, um, we, we love that place. So where do you go from there? What, uh, um, we actually, the next sled that we raced was a uh, 78 SSR, and uh, we had it, well, actually, we back up a little bit. Before the 78 SSR, which was Yamaha's first independent suspension sled, in 77, we built our own uh, independent front end sled and uh, trailing arm and radius rod and, uh, and got, our, got our feet wet in, in you know, designing our own front suspensions. And then, and then we went to the SSR, which was uh, not a very good example of what the front end should look like. We, uh, we struggled at first with them because we were trying to run them in the stock class and finally we gave up on the stock class and switched over to the mod. And uh, we actually made the decision to do that in the pits at Eagle River. We're trying to trying to time trial in for the, the WC, and uh, every time we go fast around the corner, we break the rod ends that, that Yamaha had been using on the uh, radius rods. And uh, I remember pulling one out and throwing it on the ground. And one of the Polaris guys had told me a few years later that he picked out the one I threw on the ground, and, and they did some testing with it, and it was it was basically made out of cheese. It wasn't it wasn't good steel, that's for sure. Yeah, they and, had uh, they, they had the, the uh, it was like a, a very porous type metal on on the ball joints on those. Um, yes, they would. I, I remember they, they, they can, I mean, they, they, they went on to using those up into the SR, SRV days, I think. And they yeah, the, uh, the, the metal they were made with wasn't the greatest. So we, when we switched over to mods, we made our own radius rods out of aluminum and, and used a good, uh, better, a bigger radius or a rod end. We used like a 7 16 rod end. The one that came on it was a 3 8 or 10 millimeter. But uh, they were uh, pretty spindly and didn't hold up very well. But once we started running the mod class with the SSRs, we started doing good with that too. But um, didn't have the greatest luck in the stock class with those. But, um, they had they had about a half inch of bump steer in them the way they came from the factory. We right away we learned out how to learned how to fix that and and raise and lower the the, end, you know, the tie rod like height of the steering arm and to get the bump steer right and. Uh, once we got the bugs out of them, and we they worked pretty good. When, so did, did you ha did you start having an affiliation or uh, with the Yamaha at, at that point during those uh, those AN years too? We had a uh, Yamaha dealer, uh, Daily Brothers, um, in Spencerport, New York, that actually sponsored us uh, from that learned learned of us at Wheatsport and then sponsored us, you know, to discount on things. And then we actually uh, our first Yamaha support came from uh, we were at Wheatsport one Thursday night. And a, a Japanese guy from Yamaha came to the races, and they, he, when, when those guys would come to the races for the first time, they, they had no warm clothing or anything, so they would give them a whole new snowmobile suit. And, uh, and at the, he was going back to Japan, so when he left, he gave us his, everything that they had given him, he gave to us. And that was our first support with some clothing. And then uh, in 78, uh, uh, we started getting some, you know, we got a good deal on our sleds from, from Yamaha, and then by 79 and 80, we were we were getting uh, you know, more and more help from the factory, and by uh, by 82 or 3, we were you know uh, we were building stuff for them. Uh, we when when Yamaha first ventured into the uh, racing and in that day and age, you only had to build 50 sleds to uh, be legal for the stock class. So what they would do is they'd have me build 50 kits or or first thing was the uh, sway bar kits for the for the wide phaser. They they took a phaser or I'm sorry, SR5 
took it an SR5 that we had widened out and had a waiver on it and basically copied that chassis. You bought an SR5, you got a bare wide front end chassis from Yamaha to switch everything over to, and then you, then you got a sway bar from me. And then uh, it was still legal for the stock class. And then uh, that was in 83-ish. And then in 84, 85, we started running the Phaser. And we what they did with the Phaser SX in 80, um, 85 was uh, we, they shipped me 50 uh, 1984 phasers. We would uncrate crate them five at a time, widen the front end out, put a longer track in, move the skid back in the tunnel, paint them, re-decal them, and uh, it was kind of a signature series that I, that was my signature in the hood. And uh, we built 50 of those. And that's actually the sled that, that changed the rules because when we did so well with those phaser SXs that they uh, decided to change the rules to 500 instead of uh, 50 to, to build legal for stock class. So that kind of put me out of business as far as doing those. Yeah, I, I, remember, I remember that. I, I had I had two of your uh, your SRVs, uh, the 80, yes. 83 and 84, yeah. and um, I didn't get one of the wide phasers, uh, but I, I did uh, get a bunch of stuff for the Exciter, which was uh, kind of uh, was after the uh, after sure. the, um, the the phaser. But uh, yeah, the, the, those those SRVs, um, um, you d you did so Yamaha just just asked you to to, to build these kits. Um, and, and well, I, I had been building you know this this parts for them myself or that when we raced what was called Formula 56, which was a mod chassis with a 56 horsepower motor. And, and then uh, we had this sway bars on those and we had them on the, uh, I had, had an 82 SRX 500 that they never did end up releasing uh, those sleds. Um, and we had one of those and I, I did my my first kind of ice Le Mans snowcross type race at, uh, in 1980. One on the 82 SRX 500 at the Pontiac Silverdome in the parking lot. They had a race, and uh, in the Pontiac, Michigan, and uh, I ended up winning that. And then, then we went to uh, I think the uh, Alexandria Muscle Machine Shootout was the right. was my real first uh, Ice Le Mans or snowcross type deal. They were they had jumps and you landed on flat on the ice and and. Uh, I had a uh, 81 SRX with a wide front end, long trail reverse suspension, and and that we were racing there. And uh, it was the, we were one of the faster sleds there, but the front end we didn't have a strong enough cross number, and uh, on landing on the ice, it just was bending my, my cross number tubing, and uh, we weren't using chromoly at the time. And uh, um, Brad Hewings ended up winning that event on one of the Carpic special sleds, Carpic Jared Carpic. Right. And Brad Healings raced the two sleds that Gerard had built, and uh, we were giving him a run for his money up until the, uh, the final. But in the final, my front end was bent so bad I, I couldn't even get around the corner and everything. You know, so, but we learned. You know, every everything we did was learning experience, and, uh, uh, and then from then on, then we built the S two SRX five hundred and uh, won that race at Pontiac Silverdome, and then uh, and then we started doing for Yamaha where they were selling the, the kit sleds. Right, yeah, but. Uh yeah, and back up a bit. Uh, you you also had a stint on on a Polaris RXL, um, um, and 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 the first time I, I noticed uh, you is, is you had a the, the RXL. I guess it was at Peterborough, and uh, you had you had you had the uh, the right side bodywork enclosed. Um, on yeah, the we uh, Ann and I uh, in 1979. I went to uh, Ann hired me to race for him right out of his shop. And actually, Doug Hayes was racing for him too. Uh, he was Doug was going to run cross country, and I was going to run ovals. And Ola and I, um, Ola's 
smart guy, and uh, uh, he came up with the idea to make a rolling wind tunnel, we called it. Um, we took my 78 Ford pickup truck and built a uh, platform over, over the hood and over the roof and, and all the way down the back, and it basically had a, a scale on there with dynamometer scales measuring front, rear, front and rear downforce and then drag. We put the RXL up on there, and we'd run down the road at 55 miles an hour, and he would have somebody driving the truck. He'd be reading the gauges, and I'd be up on top of the, on the sled, trying, you know, moving around different positions, and we'd test track for air drag. And then we started taping aluminum pieces and plastic pieces and everything, every shape of cardboard, everything you can think of. We were taping, basically building the bodywork out of tape and cardboard, and uh, on this wind tunnel, and then. Uh, we came up with the body design we liked for the bodywork, and then we transferred that over to fiberglass. He had a he had worked for Ona C before that, uh, Alport Marine Corporation, and he was designing engines and running the race department. And there was a guy that worked with him. I can't remember his name, but he was a fiberglass specialist. He came and uh, he built slugs and molds and built bodywork for those slugs. And uh, um, I, that's where I got my education into into uh, building molds was from him. And it was very smart guy and very meticulous guy. And uh, we built the bodywork for the, when we had the enclosed, we were the first ones to have the enclosed right-hand side panel. We had a wing shape on the back of the sled and then a, a high downforce uh, split around the front and, and a different shape of the nose. And we took that sled from having 50 pounds of, of lift at 55 miles an hour to 50 pounds of downforce. And uh, we, we gained 100 pounds of downforce over the, over the stock configuration and uh, reduced the drag while doing it. And so it, we started running that in 1979 at, on the Snow Pro circuit. And uh, um, the engines we were using were Fuji's, which weren't very competitive with the Rotexes, but the, the things handled good and, and, and went around the corner faster faster than anybody. But there were some tracks that run wide open all the way around, and nobody even thought about doing that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I remember. I remember seeing uh, a picture in the in Snow Week magazine of, of that uh, that setup uh, um, that you had with the uh, basically uh, a wind tunnel on top of uh, on top of the pickup truck. There was a picture yeah, of that. It was, a, it was a fun experience, and we we learned a lot. Yeah. But uh, we were you know, all of us thinking about things that other people hadn't started thinking about yet. But uh, um, and then in the next year we we put a Rotex in the uh, in there, and they they had changed the rules from 440 to 340 for the mod class, and. Uh, uh, so we were on a 440 Rotex, and uh, um, that was done. We had plenty of straightaway speed then. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah so, so uh, and then uh, after after those uh, sleds, uh, um, did you did, was it then when you you made the switch to um, to stock class racing? I guess that would be um, in 80, 82 or eighty three. Yeah, that's when we we would run a mod sled usually uh, as well as a stock sled and. Uh, for Yamaha, um, I uh, started to get into some snowcross stuff, and uh, you know, like I said, snowcross started as ice Le Mans, and then with ice jumps, landing on ice, and then uh, we worked our way into snow. But they had a race at the uh, Yamaha R&D Center in Coon Rapids, Minnesota, and that was my first snow snowcross that I had done. And uh, Bobby Donahue and I were teammates for AN, and uh, Bobby ended up winning that event on one of the one of the SR5s that I had built. And uh, um, I don't remember where I finished, but whether it was at the end, I think I crashed or something. But uh, um, Bobby was a great rider, and he was 
good in the bumps. He got it. He had long. We got our leathers from man, or from Bates, and we got the, the leathers arrived. And uh, we were just sorting out whose clothes were whose, Bobby's and mine. And uh, his pants were exactly the same size as mine, except his legs were six inches longer. <laughs> it, was, it was crazy how long his legs are. But uh, he was, uh, which made for good leaning off well in the uh, in the over race, and he was very successful uh, in the over race. Uh, in, uh, okay, so, so uh, your, your stock classes. Um, how many championships did you win with those SRVs and uh, and, and phasers? Do you recall? Well, I don't. I don't really don't have have a clue. I know we won at Eagle River over the years. I won a total of eleven or so uh, classes. But uh, uh, as far as championships, we we ran a lot of SRF stuff. That's where we met you and your brother Ken. Yeah. And. Uh, um, Won the several championships up there, and as well as USSA, but I, I can't tell you. Um, and then uh, I guess after the, after the, uh, the the stock the stock racing, you, you went into uh, Formula Three, which was the next progression in, in, into stock racing. Uh, you had some great success there again, and a sled that you built. Yeah, um, the Formula Three was uh, the first one they had at Eagle River. Uh, I think Bobby Donahue ended up winning that one, and then uh, I think they ended up winning the next four. Um, but uh, they were basically wide front end uh, the uh, SRX or um, Exciter. Um, uh, well, we actually we had Exciters and we had VMAX. Uh, right. Yeah. It, it was before the VMAX war. It was called the VMAX, and uh, they were 540s. And then uh, um, I think that's what we won the first couple years on at, uh, at Eagle River, and then I switched over to the Exciter, and because uh, Yamaha was going in that direction. Sled-wise, but the basic idea of Formula Three was it was a an unlimited engine with a uh, it had to be like a stock silhouette of the stock sled, but we would widen the front end and lower it down and and you know put sway bars on them and such and get them to go around the corner. And uh, we uh, I had a great great time at Eagle River, and that was my favorite track. And, and that's we excelled well there because of the cornering speed and that's what I concentrated on. We were usually not the fastest on the straightaway, but in the corner we were usually the fastest. And the, you know, the SR5 and the VMAX um, had the, and as well as the Phaser, had the TSS front end, which wasn't a great for pump absorption, but it was, it worked great for uh, for oval racing because it, it didn't, it, it moved freely when you're going on the straightaway, but when in the corner as you put the force, side force into it, you get friction and no stress and it would actually help Reduce the body roll, so it actually helped help it go around the corner. Yeah, you think you think uh, uh, you know going up against the RXL Indies and uh, and the, well, and Skidoo had their uh, their post stock sled at the time. You, you would have think that the, the Yamaha would not have been the best sled, but it it, it ended up being pretty dominant. You had we had uh, um, you know Jim Virgin and, uh, and those guys and the, the vault all racing the Yamahas and, and they, they were dominating like the Yamaha. Yeah, we had a we had a hell of a team there. Jim Kettinger was the Yamaha race coordinator. He put together the, the team of Jim Oregon, uh, myself, uh, Steve Hool, and Guy Uselsdinger. And uh, between the four of us, we, we won everything. And uh, near Eagle River, I ended up winning the, the, uh, the Formula 56 class, which was we all had, we all had phasers in the Formula 56 class. And then we had a, a VMAX for the uh, Formula 3. And uh, I think I ended up winning both of those a couple of years in a row. But uh, that was fun racing with those guys because they were they were all great drivers and uh, good tuners. And I still 
fill uh, C Steve every uh, every Steve Hole that is every weekend at the races. Uh, he's tuning on Tucker's truck, and I'm tuning on Cody Cam. So uh, we still have a we still have a rivalry rivalry, but a good friendship. Yeah, great. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. but uh, um, the uh, um, when Yamaha got into uh, oval racing, they uh, you know they like I said Jim Kettinger was the race coordinator, and he he and I worked together very closely. Uh, um, I, w I would do some testing for them on, even on production sleds and riding it after the race season was over with. I'm doing test riding and whatnot with uh, Mario Ito and uh, and Jim Kettinger. But uh, um, those were some great. I learned a lot from the, working with the Japanese at Yamaha. And have some some great engineers there that from Japan. Yeah. And um, you then you went on your formless your uh, your. Screw Vmax, uh, or, or sorry, the, the Yamaha Vmax that you had. Uh, um, that was a that was a big project, and um, for for Yamaha and yourself, uh, and, and you you had your Bender Racing business going at the time. Um, In the early '80s, I started an aftermarket company called Bender Racing, and and uh, we would we started by selling wide front end kits for for Yamahas and uh, Tasers and uh, SR5s, and then uh, selling sway bars for them, and then. Uh, uh, and we had long travel suspension kits, and we would. Uh, Ian was one of my big distributors. Uh, he would sell, you know, we'd take him 50 or 100 kits at a time from me, and we'd be, as we were going out the door, getting ready to go to the races, we'd be building sway bars and dropping them off at his place on the way to the races in Wisconsin or Minnesota, wherever we were headed. And then, uh, um, but we uh, built Bender Racing up to be a, you know, a good sized company building pipes and clutch kits and. You name it. We had we had everything for Yamahas. We ended up being Yamaha's official aftermarket performance parts company. And uh, when in the full full blown Formula Three days, we were, which was uh, the late 80s, early 90s, we had probably 20 people working here. Um, you know, doing doing chipping out sway bars and building sway bars and sway front end kits, and then uh, as well as working on the race team. So. But uh, in, when Yamaha was coming with their VMAX 4 in 1992, in 1991, we got one of those chassis and we built a uh, race sled out of it. And I built the chassis and then uh, Yamaha and then Japan built the motors. And uh, um, we went to Alaska. Actually, we went met at uh, Yamaha R&D Minnesota with the chassis and the engine and together put, put the engine in the chassis there and then we fitted the pipes there. Actually, when I was there, I met a guy that was doing an R&D project for Yamaha, and it was a subcontractor, and his name was Rick Bates. And uh, he was the one workstation. I was the one, the one next to him. I was fitting the pipes in the VMAX 4, and he was uh, putting a four-stroke in a, a Yamaha for the first time uh, for the for R&D. And uh, the next year, um, after meeting Rick there, I hired Rick to be my crew chief on the race team and for the VMAX 4s. But... Uh, um, we went to Alaska before that. We went to Alaska from R&D Minnesota to uh, Alaska testing with the VMAX 4, and created everything up, shipped everything up there. We started up, went down the lake one time, and the crank spun uh, came out of phase. We were firing it at 90 degrees and uh, the four-cylinder at 90 degrees, and it didn't like that, and it uh, it failed. And uh, so we loaded everything back up, shipped everything back down here, and went back to the drawing board. And the Yamaha guys in Japan were working uh, on that uh, VMAX 4 engine for Formula 3, and they were uh, they ended up firing it at 0 
180, meaning that uh, two cylinders would fire at 180, and then it would the other two cylinders would fire at 180. So there was two pistons going up and down at the same time and, and out of torque. And uh, that proved to be a bulletproof combination that we that we used in Formula Three the next year. Uh, and uh, we were we were we went on the exciters. We had about uh, 120 horsepower, the lowest in Formula Three. And we went to the, from that to the we took a year off testing the VMAX four, and then in ninety came to the races with the VMAX 4, and uh, we were making 180 horsepower, and uh, that thing was a wild ride. Uh, we, before we got it handling really good, it was, a, it was a handful to have that much power and not a lot of weight and not a lot of, uh, not a lot of handling, but we, uh, as we got it dialed in as the year went on, uh, Mike Sackett was racing for me as well as I was driving, and uh, he ended up winning most of the year races that year. Um, one so many that they uh, decided to change the rules and eliminate the. Uh, they actually, there were 750s that were run in the, in the first year, and uh, they ended up changing the rules at 600 for the next year. Um, the guy who I ended up working closely with at Polaris later on, uh, Tom Rager Sr., who was the race manager for Skidoo at the time, uh, was uh, instrumental in getting those rules changed, which outlawed my sled. And we later ended up working together. He, we, we laughed about it, but I wasn't laughing at the time. I bet, yeah. You, you're working with him now, and uh, you must uh, have that in the back yeah. of your mind. <laughs> yeah, I remember, yeah, yeah. Uh, remember Eagle River. Um, you and uh, you and Mike Sackett uh, racing there. Uh, you were running one, two, and something happened to your sled. Yeah, I, I was leading and running away with it, and uh, my ignition failed on my sled. And then Mike ended up... Uh, he ended up winning. He ended up, well, no, he ended up second. He, uh, oh, his, his, shield, his shield came off or something. Face shield or something, didn't it? Something, something like that. Yeah, yeah something. Yeah, something non-mechanical. Non -mechanical, but uh, yeah. And another thing that uh, Tom Rigger and I uh, talked about a lot, and he laughed about. I was still wasn't laughing about this. Was when he, when he beat Mike or Sackett at the Eagle River when Uslodinger did. That was a, a factory skidoo that Tom was in charge of, and uh, they had uh, they had ruined a crank case uh, in the practice broke the crank or something, and uh, they ended up switching the crankcase that night and just welding on it to make it look like they welded it up, but they didn't. They went to a different engine, oh. and, uh, which was illegal. And uh, Tom admits to it now, but he would never admit to it at the time. You know, <laughs> but, uh, oh, oh, that's great. Yeah. But, uh, and then uh, one one race we won that season, uh, we, the, the minimum weight was uh, 475 pounds, and uh, I won it. Uh, it was Ashland, Wisconsin, and we put my sled on the scale and weighed. Uh, it shouldn't have taken a victory lap because it weighed like 472 pounds or something like that. It was just a couple pounds under. They ended up disqualifying me, and uh, much to my uh, dismay. And uh, the guy who ended up disqualifying me was the tech man for USSA, which was Bill Rader, who I, again I ended up working with at Polaris later on, and uh, he and I became great friends. But uh, uh, he uh, passed away a few years ago, but uh, he was a great guy and a smart guy. Yeah, one of the one of the innovations that you came up with was the the coupling device uh, that you had on your on your rear suspension. Um, you must have been the first one to have like a coupled suspension. You you would use that on the start line, and then release it. So one of the first. Yeah, well, I had a uh, actually we were using a uh, um, a foot lever on the on the oval sled. We called it a kickstarter. It was a shaft that went through the suspension, stuck out to the side of the tunnel, and we had a. a lever on the outside of the tunnel that I would come out of the hole with a real with a long limiter strap so it would have the skis off the ground going to the corner. If 
before I got to the corner, I would stomp that lever down and it would lock in place and would pull the front limiter up, which would make let the thing go around the corner. And we kept that hidden for many, many years. Uh, Skidoo ended up copying it on their, their uh, single track uh, yeah. um, 250 snow pro sleds, I think, eventually. But uh, but uh, we we had that. And then then, then one year I used they, they were giving me a hard time about the silhouette rule of the, the, that didn't they're saying the foot lever wasn't it shouldn't have been on there because the silhouette had to remain stock for form and three, so we uh, we made an air operated one and the air cylinder did the work. But but uh, um, and then later on in uh, in the snowcross days and still today we use a what we call a whole shot device which is a little shock absorber in the back of the suspension that dampens the uh, the squatting motion of the sled as you come out of the hole and uh, helps to uh, keep the speed from wheeling up too high. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so, so after after your I guess uh, your kind of when 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 did your your stock snowmobile racing career stop? Um, it had, it went on as far as me racing them or yeah, building yeah, them. As far as me racing, uh, me racing them, I would say was probably uh, we raced the SR5 and the uh, stock class in the mid '80s. That was when we switched to Formula Three. I never raced the stock sled again after that. Formula Three was just too much fun. It was uh, it was just the neat thing about Formula Three was there wasn't very many guys could ride it because they were so blazingly fast down the straightaway, and when you got to the corner, they were a handful, and uh, um, so it really separated the men from the boys. There, uh, it was you know, Worgen and Hool and Gifflebinger and those guys were Mike Hool and um, all all guys that had battles with at one point or another in Formula Three, but. We uh, we went a couple of years there where we won every race and uh, and we did some Su 500 in the in the meantime the two my brother and I ran the Su 500 on those Formula Three sleds and uh, we, I think I raced it three times and we ended up uh, fourth uh, second in in the DNF but uh, one year when I was racing there with my brother we had, at the 406 lap we had a, a six lap lead uh, in the whole field and. Uh, brother was on the sled and was a big pile up on the front straightaway and he ended up getting involved in the accident and uh, we, we had a six lap lead and when, when the red flag came out we had a five lap lead and then uh, we had our sled was unrideable because it was just totally destroyed. They went back out and ran five more laps under caution and uh, they could put us down to uh, in second and uh, that's where we ended up. But should have won that one. That was one that got away. That's one that got away. Very, yeah. was, that was a very fun race, the Sioux 500, but it was very frustrating because the scoring was such was so uh, haphazard there that uh, it was uh, always a dispute about scoring. It seemed like every year. Now I, I'm sure they're using trans, transponders, but which uh, helps a lot. But so, um, the, the stock class racing back then um, it was it was it was very competitive. Um, what, what do you see the differences? In, uh, in those years to, in, to now? Um, some people think that uh, snowmobiles have come a long way since back then, but they really haven't. Uh, you know, the, the travel is a little better, suspension is a little better, but the, but uh, as we get up in travel and uh, and we get the suspension to get better, the, the cornering speed on the ice for oval racing uh, has gotten slower, I think, for the stock sleds. But uh, um, the uh, Stock sleds that we raced, there, you know, the the rules were such that you could change some springs and and uh, you know adjustments, but you couldn't uh, you couldn't today in the stock class in snowcross you can run different shocks and 
titanium springs, and so it's uh, it's a little more. It was a little more cost effective back then when you couldn't, when you couldn't do all that stuff. And you know now if, if you were going stock racing with your kid in the snowcross, distant shocks and uh, springs, you got a hell of an investment. You know, and the sleds are ten grand today, where they were you know, two grand back then. So it's a lot more expensive, and, and the traveling is. Probably not changed a whole lot other than the price of fuel. But uh, we used to, you know, when I was 16, 17, we would drive to West Yellowstone, West Yellowstone Montana for the World Series. And, and uh, uh, you know, so there, we do quite a bit of traveling back then, too. But uh, as far as the stock sleds themselves go, uh, they're, they're all pretty good today. I mean, they, they, uh, they've got much more bulletproof than they used to be, to say the least. But my favorite time of stock racing was when the 50 build sleds were around because we could we could uh, build those things for Yamaha and put their Evo for the stock class and uh, I would uh, make a little money doing it as well as uh, having fun racing them. Yeah. Um, so when when did the when did the uh, the car racing thing come about? Um, my brother was into car racing before me too and uh, and I was helping him and then I decided to, to go racing myself. Uh, I had a, uh, a NASCAR modified with my first uh, Big block modified was my first race car, which most people started in the lower division, street stocks or something like that. But I didn't, of course. <laughs> but uh, and I uh, that was 19, 1980s, uh, early 80s, and then uh, I ran fairly successfully in the modified, campaigning around New York State in the modified, mostly at one track called Lancaster Speedway, which is near my my house, and. Uh, and then uh, I decided started to. I met a a guy through my aftermarket business at Bender Racing. Uh, the guy was buying snowmobile parts in North Carolina. And one day I was, he had called or was ordering something, and I was talking to him. And um, his name was Jim Gardy, and his nickname was Cheech. And he worked for Hendrick Motorsports. He was the uh, head fabricator on the 25 car, which was Tim Richmond's car. Right. And uh, he invited us to come to Watkins Glen when they were, were racing down there. And, offered us pit passes, of which we took them up on, and uh, we ended up uh, actually helping in the pits. Uh, they had uh, Tim Richmond driving one car and Benny Parsons driving another car. They were the Boulder-sponsored cars, and uh, they, they rained out one day, and then they ended up coming back on Monday and racing, and uh, they, a lot of guys had to get back to the shop, so the guys that carried tires and, and handed the drink in the window and that uh, were, were had to go back and get back to work on the shop for the next week, so we actually did some of that at the, at the track for them, which was which was a ball working with a professional organization like Hendrick Motorsports. Cheech and I ended up uh, ended up being great friends, and uh, he's the one that kind of helped me find a locate a car for the NASCAR Sportsman Series, which was uh, Humpy Wheeler, who ran uh, Charlotte Motor Speedway for uh, um, many years, uh, was a was a real promoter. He he had this idea to come up with a class that was uh, called NASCAR Sportsman. Which would take a a ex Winston Cup car or Bush car, and um, and it had to be legal for the for that series, but but an outdated body. Like at the time when we started, uh, the Aero Coupe Monte Carlo was uh, outdated, and they had switched to the Lumina, and uh, so we used the Monte Carlo for the Aero Coupe for the Sportsman class, and it had to be a, a limited two two barrel uh, engine, which was legal for the or the late model stock cars all around the, the southeast 
if you took one of those motors and put it in a bush or a cup car, I mean, you could run on the speedway at Charlotte, um, New Hampshire, uh, Pocono, and uh, they, they announced the rules, but only that there was going to be one race at Charlotte Motor Speedway, and it was 19, 19 uh, uh, let's say, 86, 87, something like that. And they... Uh, they announced the rules, and they, they, but they didn't have a series of any kind. And they, 100 cars showed up really? for the first race. This was a class that had never been run before. And it was because it was, all, it was so many people that wanted to get into bush racing and Winston Cup racing, but couldn't afford to run a, a bush car. But this was much more affordable because you could, you could, the tires were like 100 bucks a piece, and they were using like an old Winston Cup tire that was outdated. And the engines were probably the best engine you could buy was $12,000, and you could buy, I bought my car for, I think $8,000 with an old Bush car. And uh, we went racing at, uh, at Charlotte. And it was, it was 100 cars showed up, and uh, Ward Burton was on the pole. Uh, Jack Sprague, uh, who went on to truck fame and fortune, uh, went in the truck championship many times, uh, ended up winning. And I ended up crossing the finish line side by side with him, and he beat me by a few feet. Later, he, they discovered he had uh, two, it was a compression limit. He had too much compression, so they gave me the win. There at Charlotte, my first time out, yeah. and uh, that uh, blossomed into uh, many more races at, at Pocono and Charlotte and, and the Sportsman's Class, which I won. I think seven Super Speedway races over the course of a couple of years there. And uh, the neat part about that Sportsman Series was that everybody involved was also involved with somebody's Winston Cup team or Nas or Bush team, and uh, you had spotters for for Darrell Waltrip was driving one car and. Kirk Shelmerdine, the crew for crew chief for Dale Earnhardt uh, Sr., was driving another car. And, and uh, it was all those guys that we were racing against, Ward Burton and Todd Bodine and Jack Sprague. And, and uh, those are the guys I was beating every week. And there was the sports and cars, which got me a lot of exposure to Bush teams. And uh, that parlayed that into a uh, meeting. Uh, Derek Cope was the uh, Daytona 500 winner in, in, during the 80s sometime then. And uh, he had a uh, Bush team, and uh, I, Derek drove his own Bush car, and he, you know, as well as driving a car for somebody else. And he needed somebody to qualify the car for him at Talladega because uh, his dad had uh, was sick in California or Washington, wherever he was from. And he had to fly out there, so he asked me to come down there and qualify his car for him at Talladega. And uh, I had never seen the place other than on video games, and uh, we ended up turning like the fourth quickest time. Uh, year in the bush car and uh, qualified the car for him and then we were parked next to a a team that was looking for a driver for the following year with the craft singles as the sponsor and uh, I met them there and then uh, I ended up getting that ride and uh, Robbie Reiser ended up being the crew chief and his his parents or his family owned uh, Triton trailers which uh, many snowmobilers uh, know what that means because they, they, they build snowmobile trailers and uh, so I uh, um, Started off with the uh, in the Bush Series in that year, and uh, driving the 17 car for Robbie Reiser, and uh, set a track record at uh, Atlanta, winning the pole there, and, and had some okay finishes. But we were he was he didn't have a lot of setup experience or, or knowledge uh, of, of good setups, and I didn't have a lot of uh, short track experience in, the, in, the, in that type of car, both of which uh, hurt us, and uh, we ended up I crashed during qualifying at. Uh, Bristol, Tennessee that year, herniated the disc in my back and my neck. 
and uh, the uh, they put Matt Kenseth in the car. They, uh, while I was out hurt, and uh, once I got healed up, they weren't in a big hurry to put me back in the car because Matt, of course, turned out to be the next Jeff Gordon. Yeah. And uh, he uh, went on to fame and fortune in the 17 car, and uh, and I didn't. So, but uh, I had a, learned a ton while I was down there, and met a lot of people that you know, I still talk to today, and and uh, had a great time, and I wouldn't have traded that for the world. Uh, that was some uh, great times. Would you have wanted to continue? Uh, doing, doing racing like, and go to the top level was, was that an aspiration? That was my goal. But what happened was when I uh, when I got hurt in the 17 car, um, when I came back, when I was healthy enough to come back, well, I, I had I needed to get some laps on my back because my back was going to hold up because I had my back operated on, and uh, I had taken a uh, had a car that I had started building before I uh, went to the sportsman class down south, and I, I had an idea to put a snowmobile engine in a car with a scaled-down, three-quarter scale NASCAR body on it, and uh, um, we called it the Cup Lights car, and uh, with the 700 Yamaha triple in it. And I, I built one of those to, uh, to do some testing with. And then so I started just using to put laps on my back on a practice day at local racetracks around here. And uh, so when everybody saw the car, they just went crazy. People wanted to buy them, and I wasn't even making them yet. And uh, we had so much interest interest in that, and I was using it as therapy for my back. I'd go out and put a couple hundred laps on, and, and my back, you know, my back was going to hold up. And um, as I did, we had so many people interested in it, we decided to take a little different career path, and I decided to build a, um, a bunch of those cars and start a series called the uh, Cup Light Series. We got sponsorship from MBNA, MBNA credit card company in Canada, and uh, we... Uh, Started racing them all over Western New York, and uh, and we built ended up building 50 cars in the, at the peak, and uh, we had great. We ran the series, and I built the cars, sold the cars, did tech on the cars, and as a race director, and got them announced on the television coverage. I did everything you could think of, as well as uh, babysit a lot of guys that weren't real racers who wanted to get into racing. That uh, was a great opportunity for them, and uh, um, so it, it kind of took my uh, my focus away from driving myself when I did when I did the cup light thing, but uh, again it, it turned into a, a very successful business in which I, I ended up selling that and um, and an old friend of mine Rick Bates who I had mentioned earlier was working for Polaris um, in the R and D department. He was actually um, he built the race sleds up there uh, as far as the, the prototypes and uh, for the race sleds and. Uh, I had uh, my son was Brett was uh, was about uh, 12 years old and he had uh, we had gone to a local snowcross race and uh, against my better judgment I let him ride somebody else's sled at the races and he got the bug and uh, <laughs> he wanted to go racing and uh, I had been away from snowmobile racing for a few years and I called up Rick and told him that Brett was thinking about uh, bugging me about getting a sled and next thing I know I had a I had a free sled and a free studs and free everything, and I had no excuse not to go racing. So we went snowcross racing with Brett in the junior class. Yeah, I remember you came up to you came up to uh, Searchmont, I believe. With exactly, Brett, yes, we did. With no real, no, I mean, just a, it was a stock sled in the junior class, and uh, yep. I can't remember how he did, but uh, I do remember you, you know coming out of the uh, he, the woodwork after years, and there you were again. He did real well. Uh, Ken, your brother Ken, had a great series going on up there, um, and. Uh, the uh, Brett started running the junior class, and then uh, 
Um, I actually had built a mod sled for him. Uh, Tucker was, had won the X Games at like 15, so I figured Brett was 12 or 13. He was re ready for a mod sled. <laughs> and I built a mod sled with a steering over the engine and, and lots of carbon fiber and titanium and uh, it weighed like 425 pounds and had the engine in backwards and I had one of Carpet's blade uh, gearboxes in it. And uh, I actually brought that to one of, the, one of Ken's races and uh, Brett was too young to ride it, so I rode it myself in the semi-pro practice and uh, we were doing some testing with it, trying to uh, prove the steering over the engine was the way to go. And uh, I had another local kid here race it a few times, but Brett never, never was old enough to, to ride that thing. He uh, raced the stock class in, uh, in, the, in the fan sled and uh, did very well. And uh, next thing I know, uh, Rick Bates, had, I was talking to him at Claris, and he had Team Industries had a, had a snowcross team, uh, full-blown factory Claris-backed team with uh, owned by Team Industries that built the clutches for Claris. And uh, they were struggling a little bit management-wise, and uh, Rick and I had, were talking about it, and he said, you ought to talk to those guys about, about running that team. The next thing I know, I, uh, they were, the people from Team Industries flew out here in an airplane, picked me up, and brought me back to Minnesota and showed me their plans and uh, hired me on the spot for the, uh, to run, a, run the race team and, uh, and then to have Brett was racing semi-pro for them. Uh, actually, raced, raced uh, sport first and then, uh, then semi-pro, but... Uh, they had Curtis and Sean Crapo running for them, and uh, so we went uh, went racing, and that was in 2003-ish, maybe. And uh, um, we went to Duluth with uh, for the first race, and Curtis Crapo blew out his knee, and, and Sean Crapo broke his leg all in one weekend. So we <laughs> we left we left Duluth, Minnesota, with uh, one sport rider in a tractor trailer with Brett, and. Uh, um, Curtis was out for the season, and Sean was out for half a season. And we were working out of Bagley, Minnesota, out of the Team Industries uh, plant, and uh, that's where we were headquartered. And uh, the, uh, I was having conversations with Tom Rager Sr. about finding somebody to replace uh, the Crapos because we, we needed to get somebody on his sled, and we had a race team with no, no riders, no pro riders. And then he talked me into coming over to uh, to. Wausau, Wisconsin, where they, they were headquartered, and uh, meeting with uh, Levi Lavelli, who was a local, not local, but a semi-pro racer at the time. He didn't have a good weekend at Duluth either, but uh, he had everybody that, that talked about him to me, from Rick Bates to uh, Tom Rager Sr. to Tom Rager Jr. Tom Rager Jr. was a mechanic. Um, uh, had nothing but good things to say about Levi, and I uh, we ended up uh, making a deal with Levi to race for the team, and we moved the team. One of the stipulations was he wasn't going to leave Wausau because that's where he wanted to be based out of. And lucky for me because uh, Wausau turned, turned out to be a much better place to race out of than, uh, than Bagley, Minnesota. And uh, we moved the team over there and went racing with Levi at uh, the next race. And uh, um, over the years, Levi and I had a great relationship, and we still, uh, I still do motors for him, suspension parts for his team today. But uh, he, uh, he was a great rider and, uh, and fearless, to say the least. Uh, and then Brett was running semi-pro and Levi was running pro. And, uh, and then Brett won the semi-pro stock and semi-pro open race at Duluth one year and swept the weekend. And uh, the only other guy to ever do that was uh, Levi Lavelli. And uh, um, Levi won his first pro races and championship, first pro championship on our stuff. 
and then uh, uh, we got to, Levi got hurt one season, and we got Eric T.J. Gula to come race for us, and then uh, he worked out so well when Levi was was gone, and Levi came Levi came back. We uh, talked T.J. into staying for the season, and he ended up racing for us many many more seasons after that, uh, even winning the championship too. So I think we ended up winning three championships over with T.J. and Levi. Did the team industry uh, team turn into your current team? Yes, uh, team industry's goal in in snowcross racing was to get their name known. They they built the clutches for Polaris as one of their and other many other parts for Polaris, but they they were looking to build them for everybody, like uh, other OEMs like Skidoo and, and Yamaha and uh, Articat, and uh, so they. Uh, their goal was to get their name out there and, and showcase their aftermarket business. They wanted to break into the aftermarket business. Well, by the time we were done snowcross racing with them, they, they were building clutches for Skidoo and clutches for CAD and their own clutches for aftermarket and as well as Polaris's. So they really didn't want to show allegiance to one manufacturer like they were to Polaris because they were doing it for everybody. So they, they decided to get out of snowcross racing. So sat down with Tom Rager and uh, trying to figure out where I was going to go next. And uh, Hentis Racing was a uh, company owned by the Hentis family, um, and they were they have a construction company in Shakopee, Minnesota, and their boys uh, were racing for the, the team, uh, Nate and Johnny, and uh, they they raced the Skidoo's initially, and then they switched over to Polaris, and they had Todd Wolfer on the team uh, the, the last year that I ran the team industry team. And... Uh, I met those guys a little bit at the races, but they were uh, needed some help, technical help, and uh, and uh, some guidance. And uh, they, uh, Tom said I should talk, sit down with the Hentges and talk to them about running their team. So uh, that was we we had a meeting with uh, with Nate and, and Jeanette and Steve Hentges and uh, and made a, made a deal to uh, for me to come and run their team and for Brett to come and race for them. So uh, and then TJ and Levi also came with me, and we we all ended up joining forces with. Hentges and Steve and Jeanette and Johnny, and that became Hentges Racing. And we had uh, I think we had six riders this first year. We had three trailers, and uh, it was Levi and Chris Kopp out of one trailer, uh, TJ and and Brett out of the, the one, another trailer, and um, uh, Levi and uh, uh, Bobby LePage out of another trailer. And uh, I think that was something like that. Bobby, you know, Bobby LePage was the other driver, and. Uh, we ended up uh, winning the championship that year, and uh, um, when Brett went into the moved to the pro class um, on, in pro open, we ended up first, second, and third in points at the end of the year. With uh, TJ one, Brett got second, and Levi was third. Brett ended up winning three nationals that year, so that was probably my one of my most fun years because uh, you know when when your riders are doing well, it's great. But when 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 one of your riders is your son, it's is even better yet. Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, it was a lot of fun racing with Brett. So that but, brought, uh, brought that brought the fun back again. Yeah, exactly. Um, and when you know when he was racing bar to bar with Robbie Malinowski and those guys, you know, beating them, uh, that was a very very satisfying to see the least. Um, Brett turned out to be a great rider. And but uh, he learned had he learned the. The fitness end of it from TJ and Levi, it was amazing to me how, how dedicated those guys were um, diet-wise and, and training-wise. I mean, there was 
know you guys better to learn from the most is the way that you're the fittest guys in the sport. And actually, they actually got me to uh, not not intentionally, but I just from hanging around those guys, I started eating eating better and working out more, and I uh, work out more today than I did when I was racing. But uh, and I uh, owe that to them because they they're, they're all health conscious. Um, so the team but, is uh, the team is slightly downsized now. Um, you have yes, uh, we, we got just just one trailer and. Uh, um, you know, the, the, the sponsorship is tougher and tougher. The more, more things cost, the, the, the less the sponsors seem to be in the sport. It, uh, so it's, uh, it's tough to, uh, to run the scale we were running at before, but we've got one trailer with, uh, with uh, two guys racing out of it. And uh, then last year we, uh, they were second and fourth, and Justin Bergler was fourth, and, uh, and Cody Cam was second in points to Tucker. And uh, we ended up winning, uh, winning some races, and... Cody is an extremely talented guy. They're, they're two two great riders. Cody has got so much raw talent. It's, he's he's so fun to work with because he's so he doesn't even know why why he's fast. He just is fast because he's just got so much raw talent. It's yeah, fun see, to watch. Seeing him on the uh, on the video uh, this year, it was great to see somebody actually give uh, give Tucker a run for the money. And uh, Cody looked like he had no uh, he wasn't afraid of anything. He was uh, he was oh. going bar to bar with uh, with Tucker, and uh, that was great to see uh, some good old yeah. good old bar to bar racing. Uh, one guy winning all the races isn't good for anybody. The people that are winning the races wouldn't admit to it, but it's not good for the sport. It's not good for everybody. And uh, so, you know, guys like uh, Tim Tremblay and Cody Cam and, uh, and Robbie Mellonell, Rob Robbie's just retired now, but, but we need the guys that are, that are going to win races. And even if we, Tucker wins a lot, but he can't win every one of them because just isn't good for the sport. It's not good for us, that's for sure. So uh, it's fun racing with those guys, and it, you can see who works on that team, tuning those sleds for Tucker, and, uh, and Tucker's dad, and, uh, and builds a heck of a sled for for Tucker. And so they're they're tough to beat, to say the least. Tucker is an amazing rider, but Cody Cam is the next the next big thing, I think, and uh, we're we're extremely excited about having him, and uh, we uh, win as many races as we can while, while we have the chance. So. Uh, but uh, it's a uh, we, we have um, we have a program that we we do too, and that's a we call it a team alliance program. Which we've got uh, Carlson Motorsports, Dudnick Motorsports, uh, Lavelli Motorsports, and Leighton Motorsports are all players' teams that we build equipment for, and uh, we we help do the clutching on the stockers and tuning on the stock sleds and then uh, mod sleds. We run our front end, which is Consists of different uh, A-frame mounting points, uh, different A-frames, different spindles, a much smaller spindle, and a whole different geometry. And then uh, in our motor package, where we build the, the pipes and the heads and, uh, and the uh, ignition curves and things for, for all these guys. Last year, we actually built 33 enough parts for 33 sleds, but practice sleds and race sleds. And, and it's what I do all summer is. Uh, Organize and, and build and do development, and then in the whole winter run the race teams for Hensley. So it's kind of a unique situation for me because I I run a race team that has two guys racing for us against all these other teams that we actually build equipment for too. So it's a a lot of times it's a win-win situation for me. I mean, it's, it's uh, when the other guys do good, it's it's good for me, and when our guys do good, it's good for me. But uh, um, sometimes there's, there's mixed emotions about it, but uh, you know, it's a it's a great 
great program, and Nate Hentges is the uh, sole team owner of Hentges Racing. I always encourage mom and dad to get into uh, flying helicopters, believe it or not, so they're, uh, they're off doing that, and uh, Nate runs the team. So you're, you're, uh, like the, you're, like the, you're like the Hendricks of, uh, of uh, the Polaris uh, team, huh? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and that, yeah, we're the Hendricks or the Roush of uh, snowmobile racing, and, and it's, it's great because it, the, the program gets us enough financial help to, uh, to do more R&D work and uh, to uh, um, you know build a better sled, mod sled, and uh, yet it it uh, spreads the cost out over many teams, and then we, we totally share information with all these teams, so we learn things much quicker, and uh, we learn more by doing it that way because we got so many different riders. We have you know Ross Martin and Lee Bible Valley and and Corn uh, uh, Todd and uh, Andrew Carlson and. See all these guys, and they all have different riding styles and different different uh, talent levels. But uh, we we learn so much from all these guys, and uh, it makes a better sled in the long run. But I, you know, what I what I know about doing that, I, I've learned from watching the, the Hendricks of um, um, NASCAR racing. You know, they they obviously do that very successfully, and uh, we try to emulate that a little bit uh, the way we do it. So, do you want to uh, admit that you you? Like do a little bit more on on your Hendricks team, or uh? I, 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 you, know, <laughs> you save a little bit. I, I can't do that because <laughs> if I if I know a little bit, I give it to everybody just because it's you good win. when it's a win win for everybody. So uh, we have to, uh, you know, they wouldn't, nobody would pay us to to do this for them if if we were if we ever thought we weren't giving them a hundred percent. You know, um, our team engineer Sean Ray and I work very hard on engine development summer and uh, chassis changes and geometry changes and and then uh, with Rick Bates and uh, Matt Pruick at, at Polaris building their stock race sled we got a great sled to work on we share information with them totally so you know the steering system that they're using today in the stocker and and some of the geometry and the, and the rear skid and as it came directly from our team um, some of the stuff we've done with it so it's great uh, great program really is and Tom Tom Rager senior is, is retired but Tom Rager junior his son runs the uh, Polaris race program and uh, does a great job of, of coordinating uh, everything that the, the factory of Roseau and, uh, and of course Rick and I go way back so uh, he uh, we have a great relationship too so it's a uh, it's a win-win situation for everybody really so do you think you have enough uh, to, to go to go this year head toe-to-toe -to -toe with, uh, with Tucker um, yeah, I mean, equipment-wise, we're we're good, and uh, Tucker is, you know, it's hard to it's hard to limit the rider. He's so talented and so smooth, and he doesn't put a you know, key wrong anywhere. It's tough to beat that. But uh, our guys are coming. Uh, you know, the Ross Martin is uh, on the Judna team. He's extremely talented, and he gives Tucker a run for the money when he's healthy. He uh, unfortunately got hurt last year, hurt his shoulder, and the practice crash at uh, Chester Group on Montana. Montana. Getting ready for the X Games, and he, he came off his sled and hurt his shoulder. So it pretty pretty much screwed him up for the rest of the year. But uh, you know, there's uh, yes, we're going to give him a run for his money. I can tell you that. Good, good. When uh, when do you expect to be on the snow testing? Uh, we usually end up going to northern Minnesota in uh, a week and a half before Duluth. Duluth would be the Thanksgiving weekend, so we'll, we'll be on the snow a couple weeks ahead of time, maybe, uh, provided the weather cooperates. And we're hard at it here uh, right now, putting putting our sleds together. We just 
we got just about got 98% of the parts out to all the other teams that we needed to, and then we're putting our own sleds together with my crew and. Um, Part of our program is uh, some of the other mechanics from the other teams come and actually work at my shop, helping build some of the parts. So uh, we spread the workload out amongst everybody, and uh, it really works out good. Uh, I work at the chance to work with a lot of different guys and mechanics and different experience levels and ages and talents, and and uh, and I learn stuff from them too. So it's uh, it's very rewarding, to say the least. I uh, I couldn't be happier about having the position I have. And uh, being able to make a living at something that I love and uh, I'm passionate about is no deal here. So um, I'm, I'm a, one of the fortunate few. Um, is, is there any kind of technology in the open class uh, snowmobiles that, um, for my listeners, would, would surprise um, them with uh, what you're actually doing uh, versus uh, you know suspension setup, um, engine setup, uh, electronics? Is there anything? Really, that uh, you know, just kind of a wow feature. Um, not really. I, you know, it's no matter how technical things get, we it, it all comes down to basics. Uh, and uh, I mean, it's just dampening and and suspension dampening and shocks. And you know, we're we're using Walker Evans shocks this year for for the first time in a long time, and we did some testing with them at the end of last year, and had some great results. And we're looking forward to working with them again. Randy Anderson and Walker is a very smart guy, and he runs a really tight ship there. And Ben Hayes does the shock work for uh, for Polaris and for Walker, so we're looking forward to working back with Ben. Ben used to be one of the mechanics on our team for Levi, actually, uh, many years ago, and he works for Polaris and, and works with Walker now. And uh, so, uh, um, I would to answer your question. I'd say there's, I don't think there's anything that would just amaze some people, but it would be amazing how many. How many hours we put in, and how how we start from scratch, and uh, you know, building everything and everything from the silencers to the A arms to the spindles to the I mean, it's it's all it's all stuff that uh, either I'm having did the design work on and had CNC done, or or Sean Ray or team engineer and I have done together, um, and uh, it's it's amazing to me how many hours it takes to get all this stuff done, but. Uh, you look at one one little part of the of the whole system, and it's you know each piece looks pretty simple, but it's it's a complicated system that putting it all together and having every having it so it bolts on for for guys that I, that I can send it to in Wisconsin and Minnesota and these other teams, and then it bolts on and fits. Um, that's a challenge in work. For instance, you're you're using the the tall uh, tall spindle on the on the open yeah. class. Um, how how do you uh, come up with that idea? Um, uh, the the purpose of it is that we change the geometry to, to, for less roll on the front end, and uh, still still have the good bump absorption that the stock sled has, but yet help it to go around the corner and stay flatter was the challenge. And by putting the load into the chassis at a higher point with the taller spindle and the A-frame mounted much higher on the chassis than the stock one, you've gained a, a lot of uh, uh, better cornering and their bump absorption is the same. So. That was the, the goal, and we it took a while. Um, we actually started with that on Brett's sled about four years ago, and this is uh, version number 100, <laughs> well, literally. Um, but uh, it's just something that we did a little bit of computer work, but most of it's trial and error. And it's tough to 
you know, the, the simulation programs that they use for, for NASA racing are, are just crazy, and the, the technology that's there today, and we have not got to that point where we can, you know, do pull-down rigs, and we, we have shock dynos and things like that, but it's it's not the same as how it was when I was a kid or when we were training. So. That, but, that uh, kit, that uh, tall single kit, the A-arm stuff, is that that's available for um, all all the race clips if they if they if they still want. If they're if they're part of their alliance, so only for the teams that are in their alliance. Right. Okay. Um, you know that's that's what the alliance, with the cost of being in the alliance, is what helps to generate the money to use for R&D to build things like that. So uh, um, we have uh, each one of those teams that I mentioned has has guys in mod or the propulsion class that are using their stuff, and and we you know, we do things a little bit different on one to the other. I mean, we might have a little different amount or a little different geometry on something. But to, to try it, and we, we try to not make mistakes, even though we've made it before, to, to have the change on everybody's lead and, and then have it be right on everybody's or be wrong. If when it's wrong, it's a, it's a nightmare when you have so many of them built. So uh, we try to make baby steps and, uh, and get things working before we go into production. Because I'm, I'm building 33 sets of this stuff, but the cost gets quite high once I make a mistake. So, um, but uh, we're, we're constantly testing trying new things, and it's, uh, it's, it's what I love to do. I, mean, I, uh, I, live, I live for that. All right. Well, that's, uh, that sounds great. So who are your uh, your team members this year? Your mechanics, um, uh, your riders? Our mechanics are uh, um, Cody Sandman for uh, Justin Broberg, and then uh, Dan Gabu for for Cody Cam, and then uh, our guy that we have a guy that just drives the truck and, and does all the the parts ordering and, and organization of things, and that's uh, um, he he will. The nice part about about uh, having the, the guy dedicated to driving the truck is when I, I don't have to worry about that at all, and uh, um, you know I can I can rely on on him to have the truck at the races in one piece and all the sleds and and uh, um, so uh, and then Nate Hentges owns the team and he he does the uh, sponsorship. Uh, um, hunting and uh, and well as work works with me somewhat on the management side of it, but I, I pretty much run day to day stuff and and uh, um, so uh, and then Sean Ray is our team engineer. He, he and I work closely. He is actually an engineer for Delphi uh, Automotive Technology, and uh, he's uh, goes part time for the team doing uh, engineering with me and and then. Uh, Casey Kafonik is the guy that drives the truck and takes care of all that, that end of it. So we've got uh, you know, five or six guys. I have some guys that, that help me part-time, too, that, that have helped me for the, over the years that go to races two here or there. But um, pretty much uh, Casey, Dan, and Cody do all the, do all the uh, mechanic work, and then uh, Sean and I do the tuning. And, and uh, Cody Cam and uh, Justin Broberg do the riding. And who are your sponsors? Uh, we are sponsored by Monster Energy. Um, Polaris, Polaris is our biggest sponsor. We, without them, we would not be able to even think about doing this. So they, uh, they are a great company to work for, work with, and uh, and they that, that we work out of their shop in, in Rothschild, Wisconsin. And, and uh, um, CNA Skis provides our skis. Woody's provides their traction products. Walker Evans provides their shocks. Um, and it's a uh, Great program that Nate's put together. Okay. Um, 
it, and, and Duluth is going to be your first event. Uh, Duluth will be the first one, yeah, and that's uh, Thanksgiving weekend. Okay, uh, one one question, a couple questions I want to ask you. In your in your whole racing career, your stock, your 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 F1 is up. Who were your most formidable um, opponents? Like who who did you really like uh, admire? Really thought was a tough competitor. Probably Steve Hull was the toughest. Uh, he old racing wise, I I probably won the majority of them when it came to Lake Le Mans racing and uh, which was called uh, uh, what was it called? M MRP in, in Minnesota there on the uh, Lake Le Mans. He was he was the king. Uh, he 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 definitely won more of those than I ever did. Um, but probably Steve Hull. He was he was a great tuner too, and he actually was a teammate with me riding uh, my, my sled at uh, at the Sioux Five Hundred one year. But uh, probably Steve Hull and uh, and then his brother Mike. Um, uh, and that was in those days, and then in back well, back beyond that, probably uh, oh, when I first started, uh, Brad Hillings was the was probably the guy to beat out here in the East, and then uh, um, but uh, today it's you know obviously the, the tougher teams. So. Okay, and and also um, today today racing in today's uh, racing. Um, there, there's a different discipline. There's, a, there's, there's still the, the oval racing. There's snow cross. There's hill climbs. There's uh, um, cross country. It looks like it's making it, uh, a resurgence again. Um, what's your opinion of, of the current state of, of snowmobile racing? Um, I'm, I, you know, it would be nice to get more, more grassroots kind of involvement. You know, but it's, it's tough with the expensive these things are. Um, you know, snow cross is healthy. Uh, Carl Shabitsky uh, taking the reins at Isaac has made a huge, huge difference. Uh, he has really turned the corner with the, with the Isaac circuit, and uh, um, he's doing a great job running it. And, and it, it, the tracks are, are better and better every year. And the, uh, the, the I mean, they're they're tight on a tight schedule, and they and they, the TV coverage is getting better every year. I I, I think it's the only you know we're going up and up. I think it's getting better every year. Um, John Daniels has done a great job uh, taking over the Isaac, uh, um, buying it and, and turning it around. And then with his, with Carl Shabitsky's help, they've done a great job. And uh, um, so, uh, all in all, I think things are going pretty good. And uh, you know, it, it could be better, but uh, it, every year it seems like the attendance, attendance goes up, and the uh, viewership on TV goes up, and, and the, the amount of competitors at the race participants. Level is starting to we're starting to see some some climb there too, so um, it's looking really good. I'm, okay. I'm excited. Yeah. Um, what the do you ever do you ever do you ever do you talk much to the, some of your old competitors much uh, at the at these events? I know Steve's still uh, around quite a bit. Uh, yeah, well, I talked to Steve Hull actually. Uh, Steve and his uh, family uh, and my wife and I went to we went to a, a wedding in Minnesota and we uh, we were out doing a little boating on the lake out there together and. Uh, um, I talked to uh, well, Steve uh, Shearing runs one of the teams. He's an ex-old guy, that, uh, and uh, so I, uh, Steve Thorson uh, is an old, good old friend and competitor of mine, uh, and he he works for the Shearing team. And uh, so I see a few of the guys here and there, but uh, um, uh, not as much as I'd like to. But I don't I don't have as much free time as I'd like either. So, uh, um, but you know, it's funny we we're out at Deadwood. Uh, Deadwood, South Dakota, North Dakota, um, 
and we do, we're doing a little testing before they let us test on the track a little bit before the race. And I'm on uh, Cody Camp's sled, lining up, doing our, getting ready to do a hole shot and run the computer and see how the craft looks. And I look over, and Steve Wool pulls up one side of me on Tucker's sled. <laughs> and uh, I thought to myself, well, isn't, this is, isn't, that, uh, isn't that something that uh, we're still doing this after all these years? And uh, we're both riding the sleds. And, 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 there, and then there's two of, the, two of the toughest competitors on the track for the instant division. Well, that's great, uh, Tim. Uh, I was having a great time talking to you today. I uh, really appreciate you taking your time to uh, busy time of year, too. I uh, probably got you yeah, at probably one of the most busiest times of the year, you know, besides getting all these race sleds ready. Yeah, it is, but uh, I always have uh, time to, to talk racing. And uh, make sure you tell Ken, your brother, that I said hello. And, uh, yeah. And, uh, no, sure, it's, 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 it's definitely the busiest time of my life is this, this time of year. Well, I look, I look, I look forward to, uh, to, to making it up to one of the races and, uh, and, and coming out and... Uh, have a have a have a look, and uh, I'll I'll be sure to track you down. <laughs> Great, sounds good. Take All right, Tim. Great talking to you. Bye. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye bye. All right, good stuff. Uh, that was Tim Bender. It was great talking to Tim again. Uh, he's, he's a very busy guy, as you can well imagine, uh, building all those sleds, getting all those sleds ready for the upcoming snowcross uh, season. So uh, it was great talking to him again. I uh, appreciate his time and uh, recalling all, all the years uh, his racing career and uh, some, uh, some really good stuff there. So I want to thank uh, Tim for that. So uh, until our next episode, this is Gorda Van from Snowbling Podcast, and uh, we'll talk to you soon.